dedicated to reviews and discussion of TV, movies, and books. Look for us at Daily Review on Facebook and Twitter and dailyreview.com on the web. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're here to talk about the premiere of the third season of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. The first episode was called Dark, and the second was called What? It was called... Gosh, I thought the first episode was called Night. It's called Dark. You're right. It is called night. Those they're kind of synonymous. Night, sure, sure. It was, it was a dark night. That's for that's for true. And the second one is called <laughs> Mary and Martha. Okay. All right. All right. So you guys, this way that the show is being premiered, it is going to be showing episode one and two. So we thought we were going to go ahead and put those two together. If you've only watched episode one, we will pause for you for a second before we go into episode two so that you can catch back up with us in case for some reason you're listening to this far after the premiere and you're not up to date. However, Paul, I do feel like it's super important that we remind everyone, where did we leave off in season two? As if one could forget. I know how freaking stressful that season two ending was. All right. Who do you want to start with? You know, we had that entirely insane scene of Emily freaking the fuck out with Commander Lawrence's house, stabbing Lydia like a wee, 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 like psycho scene, right? Well, and pushed her like down, was it down the stairs or over the banister? I kind of thought she went over the rail, but I mean, it was, that was a scene. And then Commander Lawrence is going to take her away. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? I think you can go back and check the tapes and... I believe that my prediction was that Lydia would survive, that she was a tough old horse and would survive her assault. She, she, if you looked up tough old bird in the dictionary, Lydia's face will be just grinning right at you with that little old bird face of hers, because she is definitely a tough old bird, Paul. There's no part of me that thought a freaking little like uh, stabbing in the back several times. That's not going to take a Lydia down. Paul. She's going to have to get her head lopped off. She's like one of those, you know, uh, you lop off her head and like three more grow back. She's a Hydra. She's a freaking Hydra, Paul. Freaking Hydra. I love her. Okay, you guys, I love Ann Dowd. So like, love her, love her. She's back from our leftovers days that got us into podcasting. She is amazing in person. She was so lovely to meet at ATX. And she was so funny and like just such a cool person generally and like a cool mom like she had like funny stories to tell she was just a cool lady y'all would all love her so watching her get stabbed in the back was like you know a little bittersweet because you know Lydia friggin deserves it but Anne you know we love her so you thought Commander Lawrence was gonna do what I have nothing to go on with him even even having seen the episodes we're about to talk about the dude is just wacky Right. He has not revealed a single motive just yet. And I mean, going last season, he, he there was even less to go on. Like he seems on one hand that he is potentially a hard ass, is harboring his wife either because he loves her or because he's afraid of, of showing everybody that his wife is crazy. But then he helps Emily escape. So he's like tied in to the Martha network, which is, if if we can recall correctly, that Commander Lawrence was described as the architect of the Gilead 
government or society or something to that effect. Whatever we want to call this. Yeah. Like basically the entire like culture of Gilead is like wrapped up in him. So he invented the idea of Martha's and then to be caught up in their uh, insurrection is is like... I want to talk a lot about Commander Lawrence in the in the second episode here. So I don't want to get bogged down too hard in in analyzing him yet. But let's just finish up our season two wrap. So he drives away with Emily, and you know I'm thinking that Broken Glass song. It seems like he's doing like a total Joker, like ah, like kind of move on me, like maniacal laughter. Like when when Negan captures Daryl and and keeps him in a closet, and he plays this terrible song every morning to wake him up it's like the same sort of thing because it's a it's a really annoying song and if you heard it a lot you'd want to kill yourself and broken glass is just the same (laughs) okay okay well so were you shocked that june does not hop in the back of the truck in the end of season two yeah, because I'm a I'm a baby and I get caught up in the way that the narrative kind of pushes you to believe things. So if you recall from that episode, she had been using her over her narration, her her voiceover to prep us for the idea that she was psyching herself up to leave behind daughter number one and come back for her. And that's really what I thought we were going to do. That's where I kind of felt like the narrative might kind of shift to where she might actually have to become this like infiltrator, which I still think that's probably how this is going to all go where like she will get out as a handmaid, but then she's going to have to almost tunnel back into hell in order to get her. That's kind of where I think this is going. But I thought that line where she says, mom's got to work. I was like, okay, all right. So leaving one baby, knowing you're going to to safety while you while you yourself are putting yourself in harm's way in order to stay behind with the other baby this is a brave or crazy act paul well brave can be crazy okay they're not mutually exclusive okay and crazy can kind of be brave too mm. <laughs> you're like no nah, it don't work that way <laughs> right yeah no nah. well i guess since i guess it is uh it's got some some back and forth some trade-offs but i personally thought she was better positioned to be more effective outside but then again, we've seen the scenes. I don't want to get too far into these episodes, but we've seen the scenes from what happens, what takes place in Canada. And either our Canadian friends aren't trying very hard or that's all they can do. You know what I mean? I, I, yeah, I don't. I'm, that's a lot of that's a lot for us to try to cast some judgment on. I'm eager to do that. Let's get into this first episode of season three. We start off right where we ended, which frankly is fairly unexpected for me. I don't know. I know it was a cliffhanger and it felt like a cliffhanger, but I don't know that I expected us to be standing like right in the street still. Did you? Season two picked up the exact same way. When they were, season one ended when they were taking um, June away. Season two picked up with where they were taking her. The difference though is like the tone is like in season two is just so dark. You know, they were rounding up the handmaids to go and make them scared to death, you know? Yeah. And in this... Well, what would you say the tone is? I think they lightened up. I think they went. I think they t- they they went on the toaster scale. They went from like all the way to the right to like one notch over. You know Intrigue. What I mean? Okay, so I'm not sure if I totally agree with you. I think I'm gonna go with that. If I had to use a word for both season openers, there's this real feeling of surrender 
that comes in both. Like all those handmaids in that ball field, there was a real surrender kind of feel, you know, where they were just being punished. Like this was it, you know, the big S in the sky, surrender Dorothy. If they were going to kill them all, they were going to kill them all. This was it, you know? Yeah. And there was that same feeling. And actually, as we get into this, the same moment, practically feeling of this surrender, of this hopelessness, of this we're never going to get out of here kind of feeling. Rather than uh, going character by character for you guys, this particular uh, podcast, we are going to chunk it out by scenes. So we're going to chunk this one as like the night of the escape and like where everybody was and what everybody was doing. So hopefully that helps you a little bit because there was some jumping around, but hopefully that helps you in case you are one of those listeners who have a little bit of a hard time keeping up with the the timelines and like where exactly everybody was and which night this was. Because Sometimes that can get sketchy. This was definitely all very high high pressure night you know mm-hmm. so we have june were you shocked that she chooses to run to the mckenzie's is was this the move you thought she was going to do no that means she's going for the the home the home run like at, on night. her next at bat i wouldn't even say home run <laughs> i would say like grand slam right because she's yeah. trying to get everybody home right yeah Yeah, I agree with you. I thought she was just going to sneak back into the water first and pull straight like, me, no, no, you know, where could the baby be? And just try to like go on. Like, I did not expect her to go to the McKinsey's. Well, and when it happened so early in the narrative like this, then as a viewer, I've told you uh, listeners that I kind of turn my brain off when I watch these things and I just enjoy them. But even even, uh, an unobservant uh, person like me, kind of got the idea like well this isn't gonna work five seconds into the new season and you're gonna go and try to rescue daughter number one uh it's not gonna work and so you know when it didn't work that wasn't a surprise for me and i kind of like to be surprised in these things what did you think about the mother's in the 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 non-mother's mother's indulgence uh of june's questions on on her way out i think I was kind of surprised at first, but then I really understood why Mrs. McKenzie felt the need to just address this situation point blank. At first, when she was doing it, like in the first couple sentences, I was like, what is this? When she was like, this has to stop and all that kind of stuff. But then when she really explained it and she said like, look, Hannah is confused by this behavior. She had nightmares for weeks after the last incident. This was all like really hellish for her to understand it made me a little bit feel for the situation of like, how do you best love this child? Is this situation freaking insane? Absolutely. Would I do everything I could to pull her out? Oh my God, yes. However, I do understand the psychological plea that the other mother's having that in the process of pulling her out, you're making her crazy. So you better at least consider the collateral damage you're doing, which is kind of insane because Mrs. McKenzie's the freaking captor. You know, Mrs. McKenzie could let her go. I mean, she is the she is the kidnapper in the scenario. And you have the kidnapper saying, look, by trying to take her back, original mom, you're just confusing her. You should just allow us the kidnappers to keep her and that will just be less confusing. So it's like crazy that even for like one second of my brain, I could even possibly feel like Mrs. McKenzie has a point because she's the child kidnapper, you know? The timeline here is probably something like she's had her for two or three years. Well, yeah, long enough for an entire pregnancy, the birth of 
Nicole slash what, Holly. Holly, Nicole slash Holly. I mean, yeah, I, I would think, and, and she had some placements before Waterford. Waterford wasn't her first place. And placement. she had her whole indoctrination. Yeah, all period. that stuff. So, yeah, I would say solidly two years, which if you're a little kid, that's a huge chunk of your percentage of life. She was taken, say, at like four. four. I, yeah, I would say four. And to me, she actually, yeah, six was, seems really honestly about right. I felt like when she went in the bedroom and she realizes that the popo are like right on her trail and there's like no way she's actually going to be able to get away with Hannah. I wondered about her tying that red string to Hannah's wrist. Again, kind of thinking about this sort of like mental game. What did you think about that? It was like she wanted to symbolically be with her and have her daughter have something to remember that interaction, even though it's highly confusing. Six-year-olds don't really get symbols and, and that that sort of thing. You know, how I took it was the, you know, that sort of, um, I don't even quite know what to call it. I guess it would be like a tradition or a superstition. I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but where you're, when you're trying not to forget something, they tell you to tie a string on your finger right, in order to not forget something. So I, I, I believed that was the symbolism that she was like tying it around Hannah as like, I don't know if it's like Hannah, don't forget me, me, don't forget Hannah, whatever that was. It was a remember us moment. But do you think that that would be confusing to wake up and have this string on your arm? Oh, yeah, Sort sure. of that whole process. Like, So was that nice to do to Hannah or, or are you just kind of adding to the mental weirdness? The idea of the original parent just kind of giving up is like... It's insane, right? It's not going to happen. So it's not ideal, but it's all she's got in terms of staying somewhere in the front of the girl's mind. I mean, the discussion between Mrs. McKenzie and June was super interesting because it's by the end of it, I don't get the idea that June actually had the same sort of ill will toward Mrs. McKenzie that she did going in because it does seem like Mrs. McKenzie does love her and is providing a good home and, and all the other things that you'd hope for in your kidnapped child, I suppose. Obviously, she doesn't want her to grow up in, in Gilead, but she has to. At least she's in a in a place where she's loved and has opportunities and that kind of stuff. I, I don't, uh, I mean, that's a mouthful on the opportunities and all that stuff. Like, I don't know, Paul, like she's not going to learn to read. Well, you know, I mean, like it's a real, it's a, I mean, I meant ah, in the scope of Gilead, but that's the thing. Like, I mean, even as season three watchers, we're like legitimately starting to be like, you know, Hannah has a good life. Like, what are we saying? We've lost our ever loving minds. Like, no, this is fucked up. I am surprised that June didn't like punch Mackenzie in the nose, you know, like the whole thing was it's, just like wild, but I understand it's a long con, right? It's a long con to get Hannah back. Well, so you have to be cool in the moment to get her back in the long run and you got to not ruin Hannah in the short time, like mean, make her crazy, tie things on her body, keep popping up like a, like a horror, you know, movie in order to not make her nuts, right? So that when you get her back, she's not, you know, sucking her thumb in the corner rocking, you know? You don't want that. But I think narratively, I think this scene is is like a, maybe they needed it right here as like a prologue to the rest of the season. These two episodes that we've seen so far, they seem to set the stage that this season, more than the other two, are going to be very much focused on the women. And that sounds stupid in that, obviously, the other two episodes were highly women-focused also. But there was enough of the commander and the commander shenanigans, you know, taking her to the 
Jezebels and all yeah. that kind of shit that it kind of polluted the the story a little bit from from what I think this yeah. season is going to be. I think the men are going to be the men characters I think are going to be this is just a prediction I haven't seen it. I think it'll be highly sidelined compared to previous seasons. And this little discussion is sort of like an informal alliance, you know, where it's like, you're taking care of my kid and I guess I can be cool with that for just a little while. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I very much agree with that. I 100% agree with your prediction that the men are going to be sidelined and and that we are going to have to kind of settle into this idea that we're going to go deeper into Gilead. And at some points, even having just seen episode one and two, I feel like it is going to ask of us that we either ignore the fact that we have been privy to higher level information or somehow not expect to have as much of like a window on the world, like how we would see what the patrol officers were doing a little bit more or whatever because of Nick. Mm -hmm. Like, I think Nick's going to not be a part of the story much at all. And so to me, I, I just feel like we're going to get a lot less of that and a lot like of our hands, a lot more dirty in with like the Marthas and the handmaids and this underground railroad business. You know, I feel mm -hmm. like that's where we're heading. One thing I did want to mention that I thought was such a small moment, but at the same time, it really hit me hard as a mom was when Mrs. McKenzie said she wants to get a dog. June's comment back was she's allergic. I wish they played this out differently because Mrs. McKenzie responds, oh, she'll, well, she says she'll get the shots. I would have very much preferred for Mrs. McKenzie to have not known Hannah was allergic because this was a child that was kidnapped out of the woods. There's no reason why a four-year-old would know her medical history and given everything that's going on may not ever share, you know, that anyone had ever told her she was allergic or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. it makes sense that they wouldn't have had a medical file that would have told them that Hannah was allergic because they don't do that medical kind of stuff. And we've, yeah, we've seen the extent of their medical experience, uh, right. expertise. They don't do that. And even, even suggesting she do the shots also was highly dubious because they don't do that stuff. Right. Like they don't, they right. aren't about these medical interventions, certainly not about allergy like that just all you know they do all the roots and the berries and all that right it's all holistic they're not going to give chemical shots to a little girl to get a dog you know when they're worried about what the chemicals are in the air that whole line did not play for me at all because it didn't make sense to like the real practicality of the world and i thought it lost a lot of the punch it could have had because there should have been a moment where mrs mckenzie and they kind of played this out after when when she acted surprised that she had the same eyes as june and she was like it's a miracle and june's like no i'm her mother it was like much the same way like i'm her mom i know she's allergic to dogs because i gave birth to her and i've had her her whole life you don't know her you know, you can know she sewed yesterday and I could not know that, but I know a dog, you know, is going to give her a rash and you couldn't know that. Just felt like that didn't play out quite right for me. So little moments, I was like, kind of like picking along, you know. But the, but the phrase, I'm her mother was thrown around several times this episode as like a grenade, as like a, oh my God. as like a mic drop. And it does beg the question of like, what is a mother? What is a father? Right. We've heard that a lot about, especially when you bring in like a scenario where you have like a step parent or if you have adopted parents or whatever, like what is a mom? Is it a birth mother? Is it the person who takes care of you day in, day out? 
what is mother? And I do agree with you that they threw it around a lot. Like, what is mom? You know, who is mom in -hmm. this scenario? Mackenzie's been taking care of her two years, seems to legitimately love her under the giant umbrella of this is psycho, right? Sure. But, But still, and then you have a birth mom. You know, and it's like, okay, who, you know, who gets to call mom, all that. Obviously, we all think June, duh. But I I appreciate what you're saying, that they really throw around this, what is mother, right? Mm -hmm. And who is mother? Did you get the impression when we get back to the Waterford's house and there's a little exchange with Mr. Waterford and Serena, did you get the impression that Fred fully understood that Nick was in on it? Because... Everything that played out made it seem like he didn't think Nick was was in on it. Well, I mean, Nick would have been thrown to the to the wolves if he thought so, but he didn't do that. I don't know. I, I'm not going to go with the idea that Nick would have been thrown to the wolves if he thought he was in on it. I don't agree with that. I feel like everything going on in the Waterford house during the escape night is so complex. And I feel like we need to remind the listeners that if you guys recall, commanders are not allowed to have like chaos in their house. They can't have their handmaids running amok. They can't have their wives running secret crap. Because if you guys remember, we had an episode in the first two seasons where there was all the shenanigans going on in a commander's house and they just kill everybody. It had to do with the Martha, but they killed everybody. The commander, the wife, everyone was hanging in the front yard. There is an invested interest, not unlike with Commander Lawrence's house, to keep your dirty laundry in your home. So no matter really if he thought Nick was 100% in on it or not, I disagree that Nick would have been out on his ass because Nick knows too much. He is one of the dirty laundry and you can't really expose yourself like that. So I think that, you know, Fred wanting to call 911 made sense to me from the standpoint of saying that Emily stole the baby. That made sense to me. But that's about all you could say because they have to say that something external to the house happened. They can't implicate June. They can't implicate Nick or Serena because then Fred's dead, you know? Right. They need a fall guy, someone that's already Well, and she's gone too, you know? So it's this whole game of it being like, how do you be in the house with People you know are like a mutiny, you know, they're committing mutiny against you, right? This whole thing. But at the same time, it's like, all I wrote in my notes was Fred is in a cage of his own making, you know, especially that scene of Nick making him sit up in the handmaid's room. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean, how poetic was that, Paul? There was nowhere he could go because it was so escape proof. And there was nothing he could do to defend himself because there was no weapons or anything in the room. Like it was designed to make you. And it had impotent. all the writing on the wall. That yeah. kinda, the kind of the thing that crazy people do when yep. they've been trapped for a long time is because they weren't crazy when they started. But yeah, got a full impression of what it was like to be in his in his house, I guess. And held against his will. That was such a small moment, but such a beautiful moment you know in terms of like how you like it now fred like you're sitting on the bed crying but go back to my original question though okay do you think he knows nick was in on it he knows nick kept him from acting i do feel that nick said a a generic enough line of saying i need to protect you commander 
So we're going to put you in essentially the safest room in the house. And I'm going to stand at the door. And that way, whatever the bananas behavior that's going on in the wild streets tonight is not going to affect you, you very important man. I think it was generic enough that Fred's willing to just go with it, despite the fact that he like is obviously shocked that Nick is going to keep him from acting. It wasn't so off base to say, let's hunker down here, you know? At the same time, it makes me feel like Fred is a little simple. Well, it they are changing his character for sure. And in subsequent scenes here, as we move forward, I would say a lot, you know, they are changing his character a lot. I thought the biggest shock of the Waterford house the night of the escape was Serena. When Fred's yelling, let's call 911, and Serena says, let's give them more time. Shut the front door! What? Did you expect her to admit to knowing what was happening? I wonder if part of the Gilead approach to medicine might have included depriving Serena of like mood stabilizing medicine (laughs) or something, because she is all over the place sometimes, you know? I'm going to say that she's had a, a real steady decline. I mean, once she let go of the baby in the greenhouse to June, in the finale of season two, no, I think she's, and, and once her pinky got lopped off, no, dude, I think, I don't think we've had any jig jags from that point. I think it's been a steady, Fred can burn in hell, right? Like roller coaster ride. Don't you feel like we're just steadily heading down to hell for Fred? Maybe steadily ascending to to focus because uh, that pinky thing just happened. Like pinky I, thing is so fucking gross. In in the show timeline, that would have been like last night because she's still washing it and making mm. sure that it heals <laughs> it without infection. So nasty, so nasty. Okay, so we are going to move on to the next part where we have June returning to the Waterfords. Okay. Okay, you're gonna fucking die here, you know. Yeah, Nick is pissed, right? Nick is so pissed. What would you feel if you were Nick and you see June come back into that house, babyless? What is your comment to to this lady? About the same. I mean, if I'm Nick, I'm thinking Fred might figure out my role in this. And so I'm widely exposed. And I was cool with that as long as you got to go to Canada, June. But if you didn't go, now I'm just got my dick in the wind here and you're home. With and and the baby's gone and and there's going to be an accounting for all of this and some and I might swing for 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 helping you for nothing. I think he genuinely wanted to save June. I think he genuinely wanted her safe and out of there. And I can understand his disappointment because I mean this is definitely the type of thing where you only have like one bullet in the gun, and it's like you know he took his shot and and it didn't happen and it's like. Uh, well, no one else is going to take know? that shot for you anymore. Mm-mm. Well, how? Why would he? And like, how can they? Like, I mean, jig is up, dude. Baby's gone. Like, I mean, you know, like jig is up. So there's not a whole lot to do here. So I felt Nick a whole hell of a lot. Now, this conversation that goes on between Fred, Serena, and June. Boy, does it speak to what you're talking about about predicting that the men are just going to get sidelined. I could not believe what I was seeing. When Fred is like yelling at June and they're all kind of standing in this room, right? And then the only person June talks to is Serena. Fred amounted to like a yappy dog in that scene. He did. What did you think that June could speak directly to Serena in front of Fred and Fred just didn't wig the fuck out? He could have. 
And I don't think it would have mattered. He would have needed to physically start like just breaking be- shit, beating them with like the fireplace poker like chasing or something. Them around the room. Right. In order, very Benny Hill esque. Because by the end of it, he was just like a uh, like watching a tennis match. And you, huh? Huh? That that's that's the sound effect of me looking at different sides, left and right. So I gather that this was the moment that we were supposed to understand that Fred finally realized that all the women in his house were working together against him. Until this exact moment when he witnesses June speak directly to Serena. And this was a bold and maybe stupid move on June's part because to me, she could have taken the yelling from Fred and Serena could have come up to her room and talked to her later anyway. And they could have had the same exact conversation, only Fred would have been none the wiser that the two of them had been so, you know, in cahoots. Serena's emotions were like at a pitch level. This was just, right. This was like, baby with the bathwater, it's all over, right? Like, it's all over. We're just throwing it all the freak out there. So she couldn't have waited rationally. That seems like a thing that you could do. But, I mean, she flew across the room to, to choke out June for a second. You know, while they discussed uh, how things went down. <laughs> and I, I did appreciate that I, I was I was really surprised at how this first started. Right. Where June was like, you know, when my baby was taken from me, she screamed for her mother. And I, you know, I hope that that you know, you felt the same way, basically. And it's like, oh, my God, June, where are you going with this girl? Like, you're still in Gilead. You're still in the Waterford's house. It was so vengeful. That was not what I got from her desire to get the baby out. I always took it and everything she ever said was she was taking the baby out because this was not a place for Holly slash Nicole to grow up in. Right. right. And so this was for the safety and the health and the, and the long game for the baby. Right. Yeah. So when she kind of first presented it, like this was revenge for taking my baby. That did, that seemed a little off key for me but yeah like it did kind of like like yeah like right like it felt a little like bonk like on the on the piano where you're like wait what like i mean well and then right after that it's 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 almost like serena's like oh well i guess i understand that and i kind of respect that idea well they got back into the whole you know it was it it seems like then you know when they were embracing and stuff there there was more of that whole feeling of like this is the best for the baby like we went back to that you know, motivation like that is really why we agreed to get the baby out. But I was really quite surprised that she threw that little shade in there of like, yeah, you cry for babies. Everybody else cry when babies are taken on, don't they? You know, like that was a little like, wow. It's almost like just June just needed to show her teeth while she's getting a getting choked. Bit. A little bit there. Yeah. Well, you know, no one likes getting choked. That's never going to go well, really, huh? <laughs> she gets choked so often. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you think that you think that June would start to learn that move where you like put your hands in and then you go like like you know where right. you like learn to do the like, get your no, freaking hands no, off me no. something I don't even know it's so crazy okay so then we all just like go to our corners right like everybody's just fucking flummoxed I know that Fred says a line and I am oh god I'm switching is, this, my... is it about how he'll protect her from the um... no it was about how the women are like the bane of his existence oh he basically says something like it's like all, it's like basically no. like all the women are like the fucking worst thing like if and that didn't even make my notebook it's in here so it's in here so it might be an episode two it might even actually be what Lawrence says something about like that uh, I, I think it is Lawrence there's a line where basically it's like the women are the freaking killing me here i felt fred's 
body language at least, right? If you didn't actually say it, that was basically his sentiment in that meeting was like, God damn it, women, you're all making me crazy, <laughs> which a little bit, I have to laugh a little bit, you guys. And you guys, Handmaid's Tale, I, I, oh, I'm going to say like a little, a little, a little two-liner here. Like I recognize what our political real life world is. And by no means do Paul and I like laugh at any of these extremely serious situations. However, this is a fictional tale and we are going to talk about these characters in a way that's like, we can't cry every week with you guys, not on air. So <laughs> if we cry when we're watching it or whatever, that's one thing. But when we're going to talk about it, you guys are going to definitely hear irreverent things. So I hope you guys can deal with that. Having said that, I felt like the way that Fred was so exasperated with their behavior, there was something like funny in that way that was like, no matter how hard these men try to clamp these women down, it's almost like they're just running circles around the men, literally like Fred standing there and Serena like runs across the room like, and he has no way to like stop this, even though he's like the highest man in the world here, but like he can't control the couple of women he has in his house. Like he just can't. I kind of love that. Like there's something lovely about it. Well, and I mean, the ultimate example of that is that his wife burns the place down <laughs> like 10 minutes later. Yep. Let's get into that. So now we have, I'm calling this like the fire scene, right? So we have Serena cleaning that nasty finger situation, which still, Paul, gives me the willies. Do you have the willies, Paul? It's not that cut. It's it's that they, as a society, have legitimized a science a medical science that that features disfigurement, purposeful disfigurement. I understand the idea of, you know, severing limbs that are diseased and need to go and you need to do it safely and all that kind of stuff. But this is like cosmetic, right? Severing. And and it's like a thing and it's like part of the law. And it's yeah. like, that is the part that, that gives me the willies more is that, that that's installed as part of the justice system. It is a really like screwed up part to this whole Gilead thing that's like another level of the psychotic nature of the society. Like their whole basis at first where you're like, we're just trying to have healthy children. There's something that you could like start off at this very base level that you're like, okay, all right, well, okay, that seemed like a, a genuine desire, right? That's that, that's not evil for everyone to want healthy kids, right? No, no. Okay, you're right. It's when you layer on this really twisted, cruel, messed up stuff. Like, you know, the way we handle people is by lopping off their pinky is like, no, see, that's where you're psychos. And like, that's where you're insane. Like whatever your actual first desire was, you lost it in all of this translation here. It's insane. And it's society that really enjoys marking people, right? So they all have to wear like their color-coded clothing. But when you start lopping things off, then you also have kind of that scarlet letter sort of thing, right? Where you know that you have this lasting symbol of of this transgression, right? For your own self. And it, they did it by lopping off something that's not actually that useful, right? Pinkies, you can get along without a pinky, right? But yes. everyone else that looks at you notices, hey, you're missing a pinky. I know what that means. You broke the law. I don't want to hang out with you because, you know, they might start, you know, chopping off pinkies for, of your friends just just for safety's sake. So it's kind of scarlet lettery, but like in a really disgusting way. Mm -hmm. It's like a twisted brain way of it all. I get you. I get you. Okay. So did you think that Fred 
thought he was actually doing the right thing by telling Serena, like, hey, don't worry. Things are going to, quote, go back to normal. It's delusional, but this is a sad statement. It is what dads do. I like to think that dads is like the maintainer of peace in the house. Everyone be quiet. You know, <laughs> That's what dads say a lot. Everyone be quiet. And, and that's the same sort of idea is like back to normal is the same as like everyone just calming down, chilling out, letting these things settle, return, the peace returns. So, well, I think Serena but it's delusional. is right on with her response of like, I don't want no more normal, sir. Right. When she starts like uh, flapping around that alcohol stuff. Now, for one thing, Paul, I do not believe there was enough propellant in that bottle for the whole to, room to go up like that. You mean? And then the entire home. Like, I, I believe that you could definitely get things on fire. The only thing that I could think of is actually something that I learned recently on a trip to Philadelphia. And that was that, like, the second cause of death for women during, like, the colonial days was kitchen fires. Like, they died of kitchen fires because the sloppy cooking. No, because your clothes now have fire retardant in, built into them, and your and all of our things around us have fire retardant um, chemicals mixed into it. Okay, and they'd use open fires. But if they were using, no, this is what the tour guide said, Paul. So if you would like to run a tour in Philadelphia, you totally can. Well, maybe I but do. Let me just tell you what he said. Okay, so the point was that if they went back to this more simple life, supposedly, then they were probably wearing these like cotton only clothes and their fabrics would have been this cotton only type think feeling. And their even their furniture and everything probably would have had less chemicals than we have in it in a way that actually allow it to go up a lot easier, you know, mm. so, because everything we have from like our paint to our wallpaper, everything is fire retardant in our lives. Now they go, be, uh, you know, far beyond to try to make sure that they are safe and especially fabrics and stuff like the curtains and all that. So the fact that they had this more basic life, that is the only reason why I was going with the idea that how they really focused on the fabrics, like the fabric of the bed, the fabric of the chair, the curtains, all these parts were like shooting up in flame. I like relied on that, you know, facts of like, oh, wait, if they used a more simple fabric, that would have gone up like that because it wouldn't have had any of the chemicals to keep it from doing that. So I'm okay with this. I'm okay with how much it did. I just, it did really ask a lot of you to believe that that tiny bottle was enough to really do well, all that that quickly. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, what did you think of the way that the office like actually exploded? I believe uh, from my movie trivia watching that that is what's called a backdraft. Explain that to us, Paul, because maybe some of us, you know, I'm not going to try to I'm not going to try to speak over you about how backdraft works. I don't actually know, ahead. but I believe it has something to do with that when a fire is burning, it is basically using up all the oxygen in that space where it ever is burning. And when it comes to a new space that hasn't been burning, that's full of unburned oxygen. When it gets into that space, it like sucks in with power, like kind of like, I don't know, like an internal combustion engine basically just sucks in the flame. And so that's why the office going was so dramatic was that the doors were closed, big, heavy, thick doors, uh, not like 
you know, suburban doors, big wooden doors. And so when they finally popped open, it was like, and, yeah. and burned How up all cathartic, the scrabble. man, to see that scrabble tiles burning to hell, right? Burning to hell. This was uh, probably the the first time or second time in this episode when you said you were sick of the slow motion, watching the the uh, the the smoke scurry along the ground and, and around the ceiling and all that, and and uh, and June is sort of looking at it. I wrote in my notes that she enjoyed watching the house die. She hung around longer than safety really uh, suggests that you should stay around in a, in a burning house like that, you know, and she was smiling and I got the impression that she really enjoyed it. And this was like when they were really starting to heavily employ the slow motion. They use it a lot in this like in this episode. And that's something that I'm having real mixed feelings about, honestly, because I think that a lot of this is very, very, very dramatic as it is. You know, the facts of the plot are heavy and hard to handle. I don't know that they need to linger and slow-mo as much as they do, especially in this first episode. I mean, from like a critical point of view, I'm going to say point blank. If I was in the editing room, I'd be like, no, stop this. Like, it's too much. It's too much. We get it. We're telling a dramatic story. I'd rather the story be three minutes shorter than you slow-mo a finger across the wallpaper. Just do it in regular speed with her hand moving slowly. Like, you know what I mean? Like, don't do this, you know? It's too dramatic for me. Well, there's something so, kind of cool about smoke in slow motion, but there was other stuff that wasn't I mean. quite it's as cool. Too much. I mean, slow motion has been part of the style of the show. I mean, they have that kind of that limited palette they use, and they have used slow motion in the past. But when you brought it up, I did notice this episode was heavy on it, and that it reminded me of an episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, where they say... The episodes were running up to 12 minutes uh, short. So we really tried to stretch things out with our use of slow motion. And that's how it felt. And, it, and, and I feel like it's, again, like in this particular show, the topics are so heavy and so serious and so like heart wrenching. I don't feel like you need to play with people's emotions like that. I don't think you need to make it more dramatic with the camera work. I think there's other things you could do that would have been equally interesting that I think actually has to do with production cost. I would have actually enjoyed watching more of the house burn. Go show me the kitchen. Go show me Nick's apartment. Go show me, you know, or or specific areas where she had fights with them, you know, or moments with them. We go more around the house rather than slow-mo it out for me. Like, I don't want that, but I'm sure that was a production right. cost. Because they could blow up individual rooms in a set without much trouble. And then at the end of it, like they did in this episode, they basically just showed us the burned out husk of the, of the building, right? Mm -hmm. Which they could do with special effects. Mm -hmm. No big deal. So yeah, it does now seem like a production Yeah, issue. they just kind of used up the time that we would have watched the house burn by watching her touch the wallpaper rather than the cost and the everything that burning house that way, you know, showing fire, everything, the way yeah. it would go, how much it would destroy. So I'm like, a, like, I get it. But also at the same time, like, don't overuse it, please, because I just don't want it. It's And it's too dramatic for me, you know, especially I feel like bringing these people back in our whole watching audience. It's a little feels like stomping on our heart, you know. Do you think there's more in store for Nick and June besides take care? I don't think so. I mean, if they cross paths again, which they they could, I suppose. 
I definitely think like romantically and all the rest of that is well behind them. You know, if anything, now they're just going to work as co-conspirators, but at a distance for sure. I think Nick is done with her plan because their plans don't match. And if you think about it, that's his baby. And now his baby is alone out in the world. You know, I mean, Uh he thought he was sending his baby away with its mother. If you're Nick, you're probably pretty pissed. So I can appreciate that. Do you think that Nick and June have more time together? I don't think the show is done with Nick. And, uh, you know, for as long as she's in Gilead, it could be like one of those uh, my girlfriend in Canada sort of things where like, you know, they could find a a romantic uh, moment or something. But I just don't think there's going to be time. And like, do you feel like that there's any more romance to be had in this show? Like it doesn't feel that way. You know, it feels like, like a lot of her time. She's like, I feel like a little bit, she's going to start turning into what I feel like her mom, Holly was shown as like sort of more this like activist, you know, really working within the trenches, you know, to try to get other people out and all this stuff. Like, I don't think there's going to be a lot of time worrying about who you're making out with. I don't feel like that's the tone anymore. Do you? Yeah, I just think that's, I mean, it's, I think it's an R-rated show and I think they're going to find at least one excuse to find, make, show somebody boning before the end of the season. Well, you do got to have boning. That's true. Yeah. It's an important portion. So, uh, Waterford's take off in their car, but she gets having to go off in the handmaid's mobile. Always a, always a good time. Uh, (laughs) Fresh milk. (laughs) Can I just tell you how much my stomach tightened up and my shoulders slumped to have to see the whole going back to the freaking center? The, the dread's not even a good enough word. Did you need to see this? Do they have to show? Could it have been in words? Is it important to keep showing us the abuse? Obviously, I feel they edited it. So we didn't have to, you know, they took her in a room and the doors closed, but like we didn't have to see the hitting. We've seen hitting before. And so this is where I say that the toaster dial moved back a notch because now they can just kind of suggest hitting and we have it in our minds of what hitting looks like so you know we know that she got hit and that's why i feel like we're back a notch just a little 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 less dark because they don't show it to us we don't Mm. have to see the actual lashes on the feet yes yes how do you feel about that how do you feel about like them not making us watch that or and could they have turned it back even more of a notch and just we didn't even have to walk down the hall with her. Like, what um, could it have happened? If they were going to bother to show us them strapping her in for feet slapping, then she should have been limping the next time we saw her. Well, she was like scrubbing the floor or something. So she was like on her knees. I bet that pain lasts. I mean, she, no, but she was not on the bottom of her feet. She was on her knees. The posting to Commander Lawrence's seemed to come soon, I thought. Okay. So you're saying it wasn't. And she wasn't gimping around. Huh. So some amount of time passed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Because she had to do all her penance. So again, like we didn't see that. Is that okay though that we didn't have to see that? Like I don't want to see her like hobbling, but like, sh- are you asking like we sh- she thought so? No, I don't want to see her hobbling, but if they, if they, sh- if they show her get the feet thing, then it makes sense if, that the next thing, next time she walks, she'd be hobbling so that we could get a sense of time. If she's not hobbling, then I guess it suggests that some greater amount of time has passed. Like, I don't know. A week? Would that be enough for feet caning to to wear off? 
I, I like to keep track of things like timelines and shows like this so that I keep keep things straight, you know? Yeah. I mean, and it's kind of important because we're thinking about this concept of, you know, how long does it take to get to Canada? Where are we exactly? You know, all those kinds of things. And so it, it does get a little sketchy when you're not quite sure how much time had passed. Well, okay. So sadly, we had to deal with that. That was all gross. I was very surprised that she got the new post at Lawrence's. Thoughts on that? The motives of Commander Lawrence are still very uh, kept kept close to the vest. And so him opting for her, he's got to know who she is, like how much trouble she's been. And then we know that he has a history of weirdness with handmaids. You know, the last one he freed, but the one before that, it sounds like she might have died there or something. I think so. So her dying there doesn't necessarily mean that he did anything because we know that he's he wants to be unaware of, but is ultimately cool with the um, Underground Railroad aspects of his house. I want to talk a lot about Commander Lawrence in the next episode because I am very curious as to what our listeners thinks about him and what he what role he's actually playing now. So I so I don't want to talk about him too much now because he I think he plays such a big part coming forward. I just think there's a lot there. He's such a he's such a weird layered character. But let's go back over to Emily's story and talk about all the way through that harrowing escape. Did you think she was going to make it across? Did you not? Did she think you did you think the baby was going to die? The river crossing was about as close as you get to showing a baby die on TV. When she got swept away with that river, ooh, I didn't know what was going to happen. That was filmed in such a way that it that looked like a legitimate slip, not like an acting slip, you know what I mean? Yeah. She did. Yeah, that was scary. And so the whole that whole thing was believably scary. The baby going under, I think killing the baby right off would be even too dark for this show. But they took it up to the last second. I mean, that baby did not start coughing and crying until, I don't know, like 10 or 12 seconds after, you know, she she got it. She kind of started trying to wake up the baby. It was pretty scary there. Yeah. I, and. Do you think this is it? I mean, since they call baby shredder babies and stuff like that, like would the show go there? Like where the baby would die in the journey here? The concept of the shredder babies only been off screen, if I recall. Oh, haven't the babies they've shown us been healthy? They might have shown us some moms that were pregnant. And then we find out later that they have unhealthy babies that they do away with. I'm not, I don't know. I don't know that we've ever met the baby. And do you recall? I don't think so. Because that does seem... I don't know. I think viewers would find that too much. You can remember on other shows when they kill a kid, it was like, <gasps> they killed a kid and killing an infant in this harrowing escape. I mean, it that would really freak a lot of people out. But the reality is, could an infant so small, I mean, was that really realistic all that she was like under the water? And We learned infant CPR. I still remember. But Emily didn't do it. <laughs> did she? I don't recall. I don't think she did the, the, the whole steps, like the little compressions and the- no she just kind of was like please wake <laughs> up right it was more of a begging than really anything i mean i'll give it i'll give it the you know the karma of it all you know the baby deserved to live and make it through the the journey okay so emily and that moment with the official wow that like took my little breath away because i didn't feel like we were far away from Gilead at all which made me feel like canada's right there it's just right there. Well, they got her close. I mean, she went by vehicle. 
for a lot of it. She crossed a pretty narrow river to get there, right? I'm not sure. Narrow by what standards? I don't know. But I mean, I don't know. Like, by, I was raised next to the Mississippi. That's sort of my my standard for rivers. How far across is the Mississippi, Paul? I have no idea, but it's very big. Well, I mean, me it's a, the mighty me, Mississippi. The mighty Mississippi. Is the mighty Mississippi like 20 miles wide? No, it's not miles. Well, it's, like, how far is it? What's you couldn't it? swim it. What's narrow? Because the current. You couldn't swim it? You, no, because there's a constant swim current. swim across the ocean, Paul. <laughs> Your face. You couldn't swim straight across. Okay. okay. Unless you were very strong. You'd have to be massively strong. Yeah, yes. probably very strong. My father and grandfather took me fishing one time when they I was did not. small what? on the Missouri, which is just a tributary to the Mississippi. What? And they told me as a small child, like a six-year-old, that if I fell in, no one was coming to get me. Yeah, but that does not, <laughs> it's not scientific fact. That's just mean caretaking, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> That's just sloppy parenting. <laughs> it's not a basis that for river not... <laughs> width and depth. Oh my God, you're like, so ergo, no one could swim in a river. Like, ergo, what are right. You... <laughs> is ridiculous ridiculous anyway i'm saying i felt like gilead was really close to the border of canada i don't really care the narrowness or the wideness of said river or the swimmability as much as i'm saying like didn't you think it should have taken like a week to get to canada shouldn't she have like passed through some countryside or some bullshit because in the past remember when uh when moira got out they had her go from the barn and she had to cross like fields and there was like a lot more of this like yeah. open country it wasn't like Oh, right across the river is Gilead. And then right across the river is Canada. Like, so I was a little unsure. Like, how, what, where is Canada? Where are we exactly? Maybe she got further by car. I mean, they're close to Boston, if I recall, is the is the geography. When you look at things from our perspective down in Texas, Boston's pert near to Canada. So. <laughs> well, we're not stupid, Paul. But okay, but here's the thing. I guess we don't know how far Lawrence drove her. That's really the unknown. Like, we don't know how far he drove her. He could have driven her right to that, you know, to the bridge, basically. So, I mean, that could be very far. He could have been well, driving all night. Well, they showed us night. Emily in a truck and some other Yeah, yeah. But... So, it could have been driving for, for like a long time. We're going to go with that. So, how did you feel when it turned out to be a Canadian official and the whole asylum and all that. As I mentioned, that uh, narrow river uh, didn't seem guarded enough or or anything to be like a national border between two states that don't actually get along. So the fact that it was a Canadian thing was like, wow, we really lucked out that we that we get found ourselves in the right spot here because she knew that she was in Canada. Right. I don't think she did at all. I don't think so. I didn't think so. I mean, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. When the official was there, I was like, oh, shit. And then he's like, do you, you know, are you seeking asylum? And I was like, blah, you know. Wow, she made it. She really made it. Okay, so in another moment of like really freakishly long slow-mo slash dramatic everything, Emily walking into this clinic slash refugee center, hospital, what have you. Yeah, it seemed medical, but it but that But then there was also this other vibe it was of like, like Yeah, it was like the medical intake for refugees, perhaps. You've never seen this movie called Children of Men, correct? I don't believe so. You've heard of Children of Men? It okay. was a book, but it was sure, a movie. Sure, you say things. There is a scene at the end. The The premise is that is very similar to this, is that people have stopped having babies. And in fact, they all know who the last baby was that was born. That's how the movie starts, is that the last baby that was ever born was recently killed in like a bar fight or something, something akin to that. And that was like... 
terrible news because no one else is having babies. At the very end, though, our star has smuggled a baby. And when people see the baby, because they haven't seen a baby in 25 years, Mm -hmm. even though they're in the middle of basically like a civil war because they have nothing better to do. I forget what they're fighting about. It's all stupid, but there's like a, there's like, it's the same kind of deal where the, where the government is, is all dicks and, and the, there's people that don't want to be held down by dicks. So they're fighting. Who but, wants to be held down, down by a dick? But as soon as any, any one of them sees the baby, they just are just like dumbfounded and they put down their weapons and they're like, it's almost like Jesus has shown up on the scene because there's a baby and there hasn't been one in 25 years. Okay. This scene reminded me like a hundred percent of that same okay. feeling where it was just like, this is, this is like a unicorn is prancing through the okay, refugee so center. Were you taking that to be about the baby? Absolutely. Okay. I was taking that to be clapping for Emily for like escaping and like escaping with the baby. But I wasn't even focused on the fact that these people may not have not seen a baby in a lot of years. In some time, yeah. I didn't focus on that. I was focused on the other part, like this person had escaped. Well, I'm sure the, I'm sure. Yeah. The, no, but I like what, no, I that, like what but... you're saying. No, I like what you're saying that that is what was really bringing the awe was really the fact that there was an infant, like a healthy in theory infant. Right. I'm okay. I'm, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure there's pats on the back for refugees, but I'm sure they get a lot of refugees. They have a whole center. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah, but the baby I think is the rarity. Because the the decline in birth rates, I looked it up just before we started, wasn't constrained to the former United States in the Handmaid's Tale universe. It was a worldwide problem. Canada, too. That makes sense. And we, uh, yeah. Okay, I like that. I like that we talked that part through. I really felt like that the slow-mo, though, I still had an issue with. I really didn't need that. But I did have like a little thing about the like everybody coming out and being so overwhelming. But I'll but I will very much put that to the side because of what you're saying. Like there's much more of a feeling of hope and celebration and stuff of the baby. I mean, I'm going to lean on that because I really didn't. I really thought it was actually very scary the way that they were sort of behaving with Emily because that's so overwhelming and bizarre, you know. And when we had seen it with Moira or even Luke, there was remember they had kind of like the shock blanket on. There was a lot more like quietness about that or something it was a lot more sort of like i don't quite know how to say it it was like a processing of them but it wasn't the same thing but i get it now because it was about the baby i totally get it okay much better sense i thought it was amazing how they did have like this woman doctor and this whole team come out and the idea that it was so normal and yet like fantastical that they were going to simply do all these medical things to make sure the baby and her were healthy. Like, it was funny. It was like, almost like we were in the future, you know, like they were like, we have tests now that can see if your <laughs> eyes need glasses, you know, like it felt like it would, but it really worked for me. Like in terms of just that, like we're first thing we're going to do is make sure you guys are healthy. And it was like, that's a brilliant idea. Yes. Check their bodies. Like, but even me as a viewer, I was like, yeah, yeah, queen, let's do this. Dr. Chung. Like I'm here for it. I felt really happy like exhilarated that we were they were finally going to be cared for you know and i didn't even know i wanted that with moira and luke it's like they you know they got they got fixed up they got housing they got stuff like that but like i just wanted emily to be freaking like nurtured for a sec it is funny to for to kind of place the i 
the antiquated nature of Gilead society and how they treat things like medicine and forget that it's like, actually, they just choose to be that way. The rest of the world is still kind of running where they were when Gilead decided to to destroy the United States. So overall, how'd you feel about this opening episode one? I would say I'm glad the show is back. However, I had my 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 abs all ready for a, for a gut punch and I didn't get it. Not mm. not the same way that I did last year where, you know, it was so hard to watch that first episode, like the heavy breathing and like the the blindfolds and you don't know what's going to happen and all these things. That was really gut-wrenching emotion stuff, you know? Yeah, very and, much. And this was just, this was like episode 14, season two, basically. You know okay. what I mean? Like nothing overly special about this episode for me. Okay. What did you think? Well, I mean, you know, I we should say that that last little piece that Emily does successfully make it to this like post office situation, right? There's the the photograph that made it of Hannah. Yeah. To Luke and Moira and yeah. that Emily does successfully hand the baby over. To me, that was an unexpectedly quick end to Emily's adventure to get the baby back to Luke and Moira. So I would say to that end, I mean, it's not like there's anything like wrong with the communications in Canada and like she knew Luke's name and, you know, all, you know, all the things like it's not like it should be so complex or anything. But I, got, I thought there was going to be a little bit more to that journey of getting the baby to him and, you know, that last little part. Now, again, the timeline's a little fuzzy. We don't know if she was, you know, at that clinic for two weeks or, you know, not quite sure. But I well, just like, kind of when Moira transitioned, didn't. Wasn't that at least a two episode span? Wasn't it like she made it there? And then don't you remember there was like that counselor that's kind of like, you can do whatever you want to do. You said on your own time or something. Very much. And, and, and there was more of that sort of like going out to that, uh, like remembrance tree kind of thing. Not again, like I don't need to revisit all the same things with Emily or anything. I just thought there was going to be a wee bit more of a journey of her handing the baby over and, and deciding to like meet up with Luke and Moira, like they, they were going to be her home team. I, I understand. And we'll get into it more in episode two, but I just kind of felt like that was kind of abrupt for me. So that's kind of a funny thing about this episode. I, I had a little bit of an issue with the, the the pace of some different parts here. I thought some parts felt kind of clipped, like really like, oh, that's that's just it. We're just going to leave it at that. Oh, OK. Like that's just done now. Um, or like like putting like giving her the uh, post at Lawrence's house. Like, oh, OK, we're just done at the Waterfords. Just like that. Just that's that's it now. Like you're no longer in the same house with Serena. Like it just felt kind of clipped. Like, you know, not mm -hmm. like not like there should have been some big drawn out goodbye. I'm not saying that that should have happened. But. It felt faster than expected. And then on the flip, as I've already said, like I thought that there were some parts that really dragged in the in the whole slow-mo and the so I guess for me, like the pacing felt a little bit jerky to me. Overall, though, I mean, a lot happened in this episode. Going over and seeing Hannah again, you know, going back to the Waterfords, the Waterfords house burning down, really understanding where Serena stands now. Like she's fucking on the other side, you know. Mm -hmm. Fred seems very impotent to the sitch. Nick and June's relationship, basically like kaput. Yeah. I mean, just like see you later. And then her having the new posting and Emily being fully out 
damn, you know, that was actually a whole lot for like an hour, you know? So things went fairly quickly in all this. I am looking forward to understanding more about how they're going to tell the story. We talked about this a little bit about like, who's the narrator at this point. Now we're on the outside and we have more characters coming to the outside. You know, is Emily going to take a lot more of the story? Is June going to take a lot more of the story? Are we going to start giving Serena a story outside of The Handmaids? Is she going to start playing a part of a narration here too? Because she's always kind of been like in conglomeration with Fred or June or whatever, you know? Yeah. But like, if not, how will she come in? So I'm interested in how we're going to move forward with like whose point of view and who's going to get some storylines here. So all in all, I am looking forward to season three. Thank you guys so much for listening. Stay tuned for episode two. Last chance. Your pause is just about over. All right, that's it. We're talking about episode 302 now. Mary and Martha, let's do it. Mary and Martha. Okay, guys, so now I feel like this is like some old school back to basics handmaids that we get going in. We got this walk and talk with the handmaid partner. Dude, what do you think about this new handmaid partner? Oh, you mean of Matthew? Oh, God. Could she just like yap it up more? She's like begging, begging for bruising. You know, we've we've met uh, handmaids that have... Said begging uh, for a bruising, Paul. Oh, that's sad. We've it's met like cruising for a bruising, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> we've we've met handmaids that have drunk the Kool Aid before, and of Matthew seems to have recently had a gulp. Yeah, I would say she definitely has like a red mustache, <laughs> right? Like, right. oh, oh yeah. yeah, totally like that, right? I thought the dialogue in this entire episode was the star. Like every little zinger that they could throw in here, I ate it up with a spoon. Especially compared to episode one, which I felt like had like zip. This one has so many moments where you're like, bazinga, like gotcha. And one of these was with of Matthew when she's like, whatever, you know, like of Joseph, like what's so crazy? I can't imagine what came over her. And June's all, I am of Joseph. And I'm like, oh, damn. There was like mic drop moments all over the place. This episode did feel a little sharper. Uh, than the last one. Maybe it was the lack of uh, slow motion <laughs> that didn't pollute the visuals. It was just so witty, you know, and like clever and on point, you know, I loved it. I loved it. Props to Bruce Miller for writing another terrific episode. He's written, he's been an executive producer all along. Uh, so he's got credits up and down the the show and he's got episodes in every season. So this one has some terrific lines in it. Just like a lot of panache, man. I just, I appreciate it. So again, we're like going back to these basic moments, like going back grocery shopping. Now this is very, very different. And I was asking you, Paul, as we were watching it, do you feel like they're asking us to suspend too much of what we thought we knew about Gilead in order to allow these new things to be happening. So let me give you an example. We're grocery shopping, we're yapping through the cans, we're talking with our handmade partner outside. We have seen all those things get you like a rifle butt to the head. Hashtag Janine lives. I felt like a little bit like they're asking us to just kind of like ignore the previous strictness in these different scenarios. Is that what we're being asked to do? Or like, do we just have to suspend that shit in order to allow the story to grow? I think that's it because this is not overly separated in time from those other instances. So 
yeah, we are supposed to set aside that very recently they were rifle butting Janine. Just for like breathing, you know, like nothing was happening. And they were like totally getting like yelled at. Here's the other thing I want to bring up to you guys that has like a potential. Maybe there's a little bit more looseness with the handmaids because, or even the Marthas or even everybody moving around here, because they made a comment that they're about to take back Chicago. And that makes me wonder if some of our like quote unquote troops or like patrolmen may be getting spread kind of thin. Like if we are getting more land and we are having to cover more areas, especially new areas that might need like a ton of reinforcement, then these more established areas would have to give up a lot of their like security the, people. The guardians. Right. They would have to move over to these new areas. So I'm going to throw out there that even though it was a one liner, we're about to take back Chicago. Maybe that's why there's like less monitors in the grocery store and less general guardians everywhere. That makes sense. That's what I'm going to throw out to y'all. Plus you get a little wor world building. Like there's no established map that, that you can find. You can see like in the background, certain pictures sometimes of, of the Gilead map, but you don't, you know, most of us don't really know how far West it extends. If we take for granted that we're in Boston right now so the idea of spreading further west to chicago means like we've gotten back like not we they've gotten back half of the the, the continent basically and then it might prov provide a little bit of insight why there might be some freer movement of the you know subjects here do you remember the name of the handmaid that has had a speaking part oh you're gonna ask me and i know what you're already gonna ask me the girl she's talking to you through the cans yeah i don't her name off not my brain which she's, is she's got the dramatic eyebrows yeah and... she's got like kind of cool hair yeah so. yeah no i totally dig her but i don't know what is her name off the top of my head we'll have to like look that up but yeah so she's having this gossip fest basically like casey had baby but sad bad news shredder baby Ooh. if you guys don't remember what a shredder baby is it's it's a baby born with so many defects that they that they basically euthanize it right away and this is if i recall something that is the case for like at least half of the babies born. And since there aren't that many babies born, that feels like a lot of babies, you know, because there's just not that many born. The, I, I wrote my notes, kibitz of world and local events. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Okay. So we also have the like a very familiar scene of June heading back home and getting shit from a Martha on her grocery shopping skills. That hit home. Uh, I don't. I don't know shit about nothing about cooking or steaks. I just eat them. So I always thought fillet was like this sort of thing that was like, oh, fillet. That's like a. That's like a French sounding word. It sounds like good food. Apparently not. In that same span of time that I watched this episode, I was having dinner in a friend's house and he was schooling another one of my friends about how he doesn't buy fillets. They don't have any flavor. There's no fat, so there's no flavor. And then Martha said the exact same thing to June. So, it was like, doy, oy, oy. Right. It was. It was <laughs> doy, oy, oy. That's awesome. And another one of these like, uh, yeah, yeah, bish, like, look who's coming in. Lydia visit time. This confirmed my season two hypotheses that uh, she survived. So I, I was gratified to, to get that. Now, her behavior was i thought a little predictably unpredictable it's she's such a complicated character <laughs> she's predictably unpredictable right because on the one hand she seems to 
Um, She's like Mrs. Garrett and Satan all in one. Right. It's like she cares for her handmaids. For her girls. Right. But on the other hand, has such a firm hand with them that- that She's like a psycho. It's not it even a firm hand. It's that's not what caring looks like to most people. Amen to that. I agree. So I appreciated this moment that we had when they're talking about the ceremony, which again, like this is stuff that we haven't talked about in a while. So it's like back to basics right at the beginning. Like, hey, how's the ceremony going? You know, things are saying that you're, you know, you should have been fertile, whatnot, blur, blur, blur. Mrs. Lawrence and her retort. Which I didn't write down. She wrote... <laughs> They were like, did everything go okay with the ceremony? She's like, yep, aces. Oh, I thought Mr. Lawrence had said that. Oh, no, I thought it was her. Someone said, yep, aces. Oh, shit. Okay, sorry. Well, it doesn't I matter wrote down who. Mrs. Lawrence. Oh, maybe Mrs. Lawrence just says, I want to go now. I think that's In right, because she was very nervous. Oh, and that's why they hating were, it. That's hating why they were getting up to leave, and that's why he just gave that curt, yep, aces. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Which, I mean, I like to say aces. I say uh, aces. I say aces sarcastically. Like when some always sarcastically, like if something's, if someone's like, you know, so we ended up like totally shorting you by like five things. And I'm like, mm, aces. Like I'm, I never say it in a nice way. I usually, I'll use it at work on an email when someone's telling me that they're getting me something that's it's late. I'll be like, aces. <laughs> so sarcastic. Right. Sarcastic. All the time. Right. Sarcastic. Okay. So Lydia is a little bit on to the situation. Not a little bit, but I mean, she is, but she doesn't know what's going on exactly, but she knows shit's going down at the Lawrence house because things are always just so weird there. You know, well, she was recently stabbed there by someone that well, came up that missing too. The stabbing doesn't help her be more comfortable in this house. That is true. Lydia and her fucking taser, Paul. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. She, like, takes a freaking tumble on the stairs there. A little stumble, if you will. And, you know, here's June trying to be a little bit like Lydia's old grandma. You know, she's like, oh, grandma, you know, get on up. And then fucking Lydia's like, like, she's like such a, she like bites, you know. She's like that dog who's like trying to get, you're like, oh, dog, you're like caught on the fence. You go to do this and then like, bite you. I wonder how many. Oh, you freak. Tase devices she carries because you know she has a cattle prod, which is like a nightstick with like the. I think that kind of was what that was. Well, but that was it? such close quarters that I think that was a that was a more regular oh, like police style one. taser, right? Oh, okay, okay. I don't know that much about the tasing world, so I'll I'll admit. I mean, I have to one wonder say. if like that walking stick is actually sort of like a like a spy a might have. Hybrid? Right, right. Which you can just like take off the the foot cap no. and there's like prongs. What? Yeah, I, I, I bet so. Fart! I can't handle this. It's ridiculous. Fart, she says. Fart. Just randomly. <laughs> because I can't even believe that Lydia would totally do. God, now they're totally have like a like what's the dude's name that like makes those little devices. Like I mean, a Batman or or like a Dick Tracy type, whomever. Well, Q was always in charge Q, in, yeah. in 007. Like there's a Q at the fucking Red Center making stuff. like It's, little, it's all Taze technology. Taze technology is here yeah. now in the, in the Red Center. Oh, crap. Okay, so quickly advancing our season here. We have this, you know, moment where we're thinking, okay, like things are kind of settling in, right? Same old, same old. Okay. But no. We have this Martha meeting. There's a whole total like meeting of the minds, Martha style going on in the kitchen where it turns out 
they are going to be moving Martha. Now, this is fascinating to me, y'all, because it introduces the concept that there is not just like a black and a white, like an in Gilead, out of Gilead. No, there is like an actual living, breathing resistance within Gilead that people are willing to stay in there and be like the suicide bombers. Yeah. And they've got a Martha who's got the skill set to be a bomb maker and they got to move her into position. Fascinating. They're doing it not overly secretly at Lawrence's house, which sort of suggests that he's willing to be involved in, in as much as they can use his house, but he doesn't really want, he wants like culpable deniability. Like don't say it in front of me. So if anybody asks anything, I, I can't, I, I don't have to lie. You know what I mean? I don't even know if that's it. It's like, he's so, we're going to talk about Lawrence more, but I just feel like he's just, he, I think he doesn't mind it happening at his house because it allows him to like observe a little bit of what they're doing because he kind of has his hand in at all levels. You know, like he's got, he's, he's a part of this underground railroad thing. He kind of sort of like knows what's going on with the Marthas. He obviously is a commander. And so he's got his hand in something going on over there. There's just, there's a strange thing about him where I think he's got his own shit with his wife that he's got to keep secret. That is that same game of like, you can't let it be known that chaos is getting out in, of your house. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. So I think that it's wild, but it's the same thing that I was just talking about with Fred and Serena, where the women are like running around the man. It's like he like comes in the kitchen. He's like, ah, ants, you know, like, but they're Martha's, you know, but they're, it's like, they're just like running around his house. He's like everywhere. He walks into a room and he's like, ah, you know, what are you doing in here? Right. Like, he's like, know? Mrs. Hannigan, little girls, little girls. Kind of, yeah. Like, which is a lot of what's going on at Fred's, right? Right. Like, it's just like a lot of that same kind of feel that is just, I don't know, that's the vibe I get. And like every commander is like pulling their beard hair out, you know? <laughs> don't you think? Well, like Miss Hannigan, she just gets drunk. It's total of Miss Hannigan drinking her bathtub gin. Okay, but let's not move away from this resistance quite yet. Or Miss Hannigan. We're going to get into Lawrenceville, but let's talk about June. So June sees this resistance going down and, you know, like all of us, she's like, I'm in. Now, let me ask you, Paul, would you be in? Or would you be out? Am I June or am I Paul? Well, you can be either. Play a little bit of both. If I'm June, I'm definitely in because that's how she is. I mean, this is why she stayed, basically, was to bring the system down from inside. I got to believe that's why she stayed because that's the only way she's going to get her. Right. That's the only way she's going to get her daughter. She learns the ins and outs of how to do this stuff. And not even, yeah, but not. I think trickier than that. It's not about getting Hannah out of the ant tunnel anymore. It's about, and I'm using the word ant like A-N-T, not like A-U-N-T. Like it's not about these underground tunnels. It's about the true dismantling of Gilead. Like we're thinking bigger now. Yes, I believe that's true. But if that, that doesn't come to pass, then at least she's not where she was last season, which is being shuttled around by people that know more than she does about how to do things. Everywhere she went, she was like, stay here. Someone will come. Be quiet. Mm-hmm. And she just had to do it. Right. You she know? was very much like the baggage, right? Like the the package, if you will. And And everything went wrong at every turn. So she doesn't, I don't think she wants to be in that position anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so she doesn't want to be the, the moving material. She wants to be the mover. 
So, okay, so we do get an opportunity to actually have June go along, which, again, is this realistic? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know that you can suddenly just bring an extra Martha home, <laughs> like, you know, just because she's wearing the uniform. I'm not sure. But it's allowed, and we get to have an opportunity to see this, like, blue-collar, gray-collar, I guess, if you will, working world. You'd think that if they were going to go through the trouble of having these color codes and all that other bullshit with the 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 uniforms, the wimples, <laughs> that they would require the Marthas to pull their hair back so that you could see their ears. I agree with you. Now, can you remind people why? Because the handmaids have that. What's that part of your ear that's on the top? Like a cartilage. The cartilage. They have like a cartilage piercing. That's like a cuff. Mm-hmm. on the very top that brands them. That was that was basically the key to her camouflage. Was she can wear whatever she wants, but unless she covers up that ear, kind of like Spock, whenever he would go back in time <laughs> and he'd try to mix in in like 1960s Earth, he always had to wear like a beanie so that, or yeah. So the that, tip of his ears. Yeah, so you? that you couldn't see the tip of his ears. That's real funny. Yeah. Okay, so you're right about that. And that is like kind of like a strange oversight because... Really, the Marthas, you're right, should should have their handkerchiefs on in a way that hide, you know, behind their ears, which is actually the way you wear a handkerchief, most people. Most people do not cover the tips of their ears. You wear it more. I mean, the point of it is to hold your hair back, not to tape your Pin ears your down. Ears no. <laughs> I mean, I don't I'm only speaking for myself, but I mean, I, I wear it more like a headband, I guess. I don't wear it more like a ear hider. I'm always so. weirded out when I see pictures of men whose hair cover their ears kind of like, I don't know, skirting on a 1950s Cadillac or something. It's like, oh God, just like ear weirdos? old men. Oh, like, like a little old. ear toupee. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Comedina, what, what are you doing? <laughs> I like to see your whole ear. <laughs> Do not hide your ear tip from me. <laughs> what are you trying to pull? Okay, so now we see this whole protocol, though, of moving Allison and, like, what the whole deal is. She's, like, going to leave her at a mechanic's place. Sadly, though, Paul, this goes how you say awry. It does. I mean, uh, as, as awry as it gets, she was yeah, shot. I mean, it's the most awry. Now, th- this next little part seems so crazy because they go- had to go through the trouble of getting her there with like a train and all this other shit, right? Yeah, but then she just pops back up like there was just like a little, uh, like a hidey hole. What do they call those things in your sci-fi world? Like a little- uh, Like a wormhole? Yeah, like a wormhole. A Martha hole, if you will. They weren't that, they weren't home that long, right? right? No, she pops back up totally it's like she got shot, shot right away. Like got her- <laughs> Shot and got her ass back to her Lawrence's. Got her, her train token and- She stood in the ID line, shot, (laughs) (laughs) bleeding everywhere. I don't know. Again, again, this is the part where you guys, when we're telling you right from the start, that I think we have to suspend some believability about the level of how like secure areas are. We have to think that there's like a lot more areas that are really thinly guarded now because. Again, we just assume they're off, you know, getting back to Chicago. But yeah, now she's shot. And again, people are dying, right? I mean, you can't have people hanging from trees on a daily basis or the wall and not have some, you know, attrition issues. (laughs) (laughs) No? No. Yes? (laughs) Yes. Exactly. Okay, so now this whole Allison death. Right. We get to learn a lot about Lawrence during this process, a lot about Lawrence and Lawrence's wife. Let us delve into 
a section I'm going to call, what the fuck's up with the Lawrences? Here's my... Wait, first, what's Mr. Lawrence's name? It's Joseph Lawrence. A.K.A. Joey Lawrence. (laughs) Whoa. Oh, my God. Yeah, we just realized that, and we were both like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Like that? Yeah. Did you even know I could do a Joey Lawrence? No, I didn't. You don't really do impressions. Here I am, surprising you. Yeah, even to this day. Surprise! So here's my theory on Lawrence. As, as If you've listened to this podcast, then you might know that I am a book reader. Lawrence, if he was mentioned in the book, I don't remember it. It would have been a passing character because he didn't, it wasn't important. So I don't think he was in the book. So I don't have anything up on you. Oh, here's, well, good. Here's my guess. I prefer it that way, really. I think he was just a, something like a sociology professor, somebody that would have been, written papers or had some sort of reputation for talking about things like the way societies are built, you know, where he would have like a lot of academic knowledge. And maybe he found himself at a meeting one week with these weirdos that were starting up Gilead before the fall of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know what? You're the smartest guy in the room when it comes to this. What would it take? What would a a society look like that could actually function that would reach these goals of this kind of Bible-based, quasi-Bible-based society aimed completely at- Subjugating women and- And birthing the babies. And so as like a- academic or or thought experiment it was like he 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 produced this for them once that was done that it gained him kind of like thomas jefferson type status with them 100 percent. unlike jefferson they didn't need him to lead shit afterwards they didn't they didn't want to get rid of him because what if it what if something broke you know they still needed the architect around just in case the pipes broke basically That's my guess is that I bet he doesn't actually govern or do anything like that. It's more like he's like an emeritus type position where he's just super smart. He knows how the thing was built, so you can't get rid of him, but they don't actually want him around pulling the trigger on decisions either. I don't think he wants to be sitting around pulling the trigger on decisions. I think that I will agree with you 100% that he's like an academic, that somehow this is some sort of social experiment. And at some point in some area, they allowed him to to say, okay, I will give you this explanation of how you're going to set up the society. And then I want to study the results as we go. So I'm going to live within your society, like thinly veiled, you know, like where I'm on, I'm going to go through, like, I'm sure we'll have a handmaid in the house and sure I'll have a Martha and stuff. But like, but I, but I'm not like, he doesn't like buy into all this shit. He's just like bought in enough to like play the game, but as like a, um, an observer, you know, like he, he is watching how everyone else is playing. He's watching how the pawns do things. And that's where I think that some of his responses come in. Like for instance, when Lydia does tase June, his response is not anything of empathetic or even like he's going to step in just like you wouldn't if it was a game, like, right. You're just watching. He's just an observer. And instead he like muses, like, I wonder what voltage those tasers are. That is such a like 
research, scientific, indifferent to the subjects. So I don't feel he does anything that's like truly cruel or awful. I just feel like he is doing a science experiment. And so everything he's doing, he's like watching it with these like parameters that like he doesn't want to skew the results by like getting involved necessarily. The parts where I feel like he does get involved is when one of the pieces, if you will, so like a player in the game, aka in this particular example, Emily, goes so far past the rules that they become like a liability to the game that he doesn't kill them. He just plucks them out of the game and puts them back outside the game board in a very like analytical, indifferent kind of way. I think that's why he could sing Walking on Broken Glass at the top of his lungs, you know, in that car, because he's indifferent to all this. It is like a, it's like, uh, doing experiments on animals like he doesn't care what the results are but he's extremely interested in what the results are like what is human nature what are they going to do next and so i find it fascinating really fascinating including the idea that like his wife is going along with this as well on a different level than we even thought like we thought the woman was crazy. He reminds me a lot of, you remember like in freshman psychology or one of those classes where they, where they teach you about the, the studies run at, I think it was like Stanford or someplace where they drew lots and they decided that certain students would be prisoners and other students would be guards and, and what kind of happened over the week that they ran the the um, experiment. Do you remember that one? I do. You know, it's, it's important to learn that sort of thing, but you got to think about what kind of balls it took to actually put that thing together and what kind of mildly psycho person could actually like enforce that or, or what w there was another experiment that actually had to do with kids, right? where tell me tell me if I'm getting the details right where it was something like they told the kids with like certain eye color that they were smart and they so told the kids with other eye colors that they were less smart something to that effect yes i mean he fits in with those guys right that that they're willing to fuck you up to get their to get their data well, there's another one that was like fairly, I think that there's even like a story uh, or not a story. There's a um, uh, like a show out right now that is called, it's a documentary called Three Identical Strangers. And it was like in the 1980s and it was like three triplets, right? Right. Triplets. They were separated at birth and raised by adoptive parents. And they were very specifically like put into different scenarios. So they had they had parents from different socioeconomic backgrounds, right? So their opportunities would be different. Right. And they were trying to study this whole idea of, you know, nature versus nurture and all this. But these are human regular, you know, these are human babies. Right. You know, they took them away and they did this experiment. It was here in New York City. It's not like this was somewhere far away or something, you know. So the, re so, the reason we bring this stuff up is that it's like. Think well, if you guys are interested in watching that documentary, it's called Three Identical Strangers. And I, I thought it was on Netflix, but definitely check it out. That's who I am lumping him in with. Things like the scene with Lydia and June kind of rolling around on the stairs with the tasing and his comment about that. I saw that in a little bit different way that makes everything that he says and does seem to have like a double meaning. Okay. Where it makes, like I said earlier, his motivation so ambiguous. 
like you you correctly identified his commentary as being the sort of aloof observational sort of aside right mm-hmm. but you could also take it as uh dad's watching girls get up quit fucking around on the floor me just talking is is like enough for you to know that a man's here and you know you shouldn't be acting that way in in front of me that's how i took it anyway not like i don't feel that way about myself but in that society that's the role it's like he's okay playing into that bullshit too so is he okay with it or is he trying to dismantle it you know what i mean he says both things uh i uh, I, do you mean the word dismantle that's not the word you mean do you well, if he's if he's willingly helping handmaids uh, escape, then yeah, yeah see, he, I don't think he's, he's willing, subverting it. He's not willingly allowing handmaids escape. I think that when one goes so bonkers off the rails as she did, they're a liability to his experiment. Like they like the experiment can't run anymore if you have like a rabid beast all of a sudden introduced to the experiment. Ah, I get you. So you have to remove- Erase her, right. No, just remove her. She doesn't kill her. He removes her from the experiment. That's how much I don't think this is about being cruel. I don't think this is about, for him, killing people or the man being more important or any of those things. I think it's about watching what makes people break. You know, maybe, I mean, his own wife has- seemingly mental issues super anxiety in a way that makes you wonder about what he's studying is he studying how much the brain can handle is he studying like i don't we don't really know what he's studying and what he's trying to prove or disprove maybe it's about the society maybe it's about the oppression of women and how much they can handle before they break and when one like emily broke he just takes them out of the experiment. Like, okay, that one lasted 500 days. You know, put take her out, put her to the side. Yeah. So that's how that's how I'm taking it. No, I like that. And so I think, and and part of like that experiment with the triplets is that like the those triplets, like the ch- their whole childhood was monitored, filmed, and documented. Filmed. Like under the guise that these were like this like adoptive uh like follow-ups from like the adoption agency kind of thing. In the same way that I think he's supposed to be playing a commander, and I'm using like air quotes, it would be the same way that the scientists would be coming in acting as the adoption agency mm-hmm. who needed to come film today for the, you know, just the normal follow-up. And so I feel like that's what he's doing. Like he brings them in, he's like monitoring, and maybe he's even monitoring the most questionable so like why did he have the girl before who died why did he have emily then now why did he get june you know what i'm saying like why does he always get the one that's like seemingly the most about to break is he studying them and like right when they're on the brink or what definitely the one that seems to be causing the most trouble in 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 our little society the little part we can see you know, like we don't know what's going on elsewhere, but definitely in the part we can see, June's the biggest troublemaker. You know, well, her house just burned down and the baby's missing. Yeah. You know, like she seems to be the biggest troublemaker. Why does he always get the biggest troublemaker in his house? There, I think, is a reason for that. I think he's watching that one more carefully, seeing what she gets into. In case y'all forgot, Emily ran over a dude's head. Yeah, remember that? So, my goodness. You know, there's quite a bit of uh, X marks the spot on right. her back. It's like a butterfly collector. He pins up the, the bad egg. Um, or at least is interested to see the moment she breaks. What causes your mental break with reality? How far can you push it? 
So I don't know. I don't know what this man is studying, but I definitely feel like that's his role. And Mrs. Lawrence is especially interesting to me because she seems along for the ride in a lot of ways, but she also seems like she's suffering from something herself, as if maybe he's studying some sort of deterioration of the brain, societal, you know, contributions to the deterioration of your brain or something, something that he's trying to solve, perhaps to cure his wife. I don't know, but there's something to that. And the way that Mrs. Lawrence is like totally more with it in this episode. Her, her moments of lucidity make me wonder if it is like degenerative physical problems with her brain. The anxiety part though, too, though, is very strong. But that that could be part and parcel with dementia. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Where you could still have those lucid comments from time to time. I, I think it may be a physical something. And that's very that's so interesting. The way that, that they've shown her so far, he's at first seemed a little mean to her, like shutting her up in the room and all that. But it was really more like Maybe going along with your experiment idea was it was like he didn't want to foul either one, you know, by exposing Emily and the wife to each other. Kind of like, okay, what do they call it? Cross contamination. When, yeah. you, when you put your, your cook steak on your raw steak plate, it's like, it's like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm also going to go with, I, I do sincerely think the way that he got real outraged in this episode where someone mentioned his wife and he's like, you do not speak of my wife. I think he I think he legitimately loves her and wants to cure her and wants to or and wants to protect her. And the this really strange environment is scary. And so if she comes out here and she starts interacting with these people, you know, she she's going to wig, you know, like she's yeah. going to she's really going to really get upset. So I do think it's it's about protecting her. OK, but let's talk about for a second Lawrence's response to this whole Allison thing, because he doesn't want this whole thing going on in the house for I don't think it's culpability reasons. I think that these ladies are playing outside of his rules, sort of like he seems very aware that within the society, people would start creating essentially an underground railroad and these other like side things. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's like, it's like he kind of like watched what they were doing and then sort of stepped in when he could see it was going to go awry. You know, like, he's like, this is going to be your funeral. Like, eh, if you're going to keep doing this, you know, like almost in a way that he knew better, you know, like he knew this wasn't going to go great. And, uh, well, sorry. like during our little pregame, you had talked about him as a game player, as like a, a chess player. What if he's like a game theory person? Is that a thing? That's a thing. The same way that, that, you know, I've played, uh, I will imagine that most of our listeners are women. So I don't know if you've run into such a thing as a game called Magic the Gathering. But I've played this game and it is a hard game. And I have been spoken to in very much the same way as as he spoke to her. Things like it's your funeral, like for making a given move or not making a given move. It's like the same kind of trash talk. That's what it amounts to, right? 
kind of like, I'm better at this game than you. I can see where you're going to go wrong, but I'm still going to let you make the mistake. It hundred percent. It seems like like a chess player who's got like three moves ahead of you. And he's like, uh, like, you know, you start to move your piece and he's like, mm, like, that's a piece you want to move there. Like it, it, it just seems like he already has the rule book and, and that he's seen enough of this to have like a fairly good idea of how different scenarios are going to play out. Also, I think he has an intense need for certain players like June to understand or get some or get better at the game is what I want to say. So like with Allison's body, when he says to her, you're the one that has to go take care of this mess, like you have to deal with it. And then, you know, one, the Martha tries to help her and he's like, no, Beth, like I said, she has to do it. I really felt like that was like not punishment as you might look at it from like a truly Gilead kind of cut off your pinky kind of way, but more like you've got to get smarter as a player, you know, and there's sort of like a, like a roadblock you have to do like AKA amazing race in order to become a more savvy player. For some reason I'm thinking of, and I can't give you a, uh, an example. For some reason I'm thinking of like martial arts movies, you know, where the, where the, student fucks up and the sensei is like, well, now you got to chop wood all day or, you know, something, something like that, or you gotta, you gotta punch this, this, this tree for, for five hours. And, and then you'll, you'll get it right after that. I'm pretty positive. I think, I think, because I think a lot of those things are, while this isn't, it, it is physically taxing. I think it's also supposed to be sort of emotionally, obviously taxing and everything in that. I think perhaps I'll throw this out. Perhaps the lesson you're supposed to learn is this was a human body, right? And he, you know, he keeps asking them when they're in the middle of this. This is, again, why this goes to this whole research study idea. He keeps asking them, do you know her? And they're like, no, we don't know her. And he's like, and yet you're helping her. And it's like, it's like a game. Like, like what would motivate you to help a stranger? And in what scenario and how far would you go? Mm -hmm. And so when he asks more than once, like you don't know her and yet you're here caring for her, you know, mm -hmm. why are you doing that? Like to me, that is such a, such a researcher kind of, you know, trying to figure out people's motivations and like human nature, you know? Yeah. I, I found all of that just so interesting. This entire episode was like steeped in this. Now, where Mrs. Lawrence is such a wow is that whole scene with the garden. What did you think about that? That's the lucid part that I was that I was talking about where someone just dug up her garden to make a very shallow grave for a dead body and she's out there planting like begonias, right? So well, you're laughing and why are you laughing? Because, because it's absurd? She's like, well, a little bit, yeah. The okay, but then then does that make you lucid? Is it absurd to be planting it or is she covering up where the dead body was? Is it entirely lucid? I, I think it's entirely lucid in the sense that she is helping cover for her husband's house. It's her house too, but she's kind of hidden away. So it's, he's the face. That's how Gilead works. He's the face. Do you think that, do you think that there was any conversation between her and Lawrence about making that garden? Do you think it's the type of thing that like, he was like, you know, it would look so pretty over there. It would look so pretty if you put a garden over there. And she was like, you know what? I'm going to go do that. Like, was it like that? Or did she realize a dead body was out there and she took it upon herself to think of a way to mask that? The night before when the guardians showed up, she very awarely told them where to go and how to hide. 
right? To try to to and try was to, aware of that blood stain on the on the wallpaper. Yes, these are not consistent with the nervous Nelly that we had seen in other other scenes. That doesn't mean they're not the same person. You know, that kind of thing waxes and wanes, medications, whatever. Yeah, I think it does. Those two scenes jive together perfectly though the way that she like you said is and i said later the idea of protecting the house that's what you do very fascinating the lawrences to me have proven to be way more interesting than the waterfords like so much more interesting even despite the fact that they showed us the backstory of serena doing all these speeches and how fred was like this like slug of a human and everything and they showed us their transformation and how it all worked even though that seemed fascinating at the time the Lawrences really make me stop and be like, huh? And like how much, like you said, how much would a person do to another person in order in like the name of science, you know, mm -hmm. like, wow, that's some real interesting stuff. And like, if it all turned out to be a giant social experiment, how not shocked would I be? Honestly, you know, if we pull the camera back and we're all like, they all were always a part of this social experiment. It just seems like, yeah, that seems right. You know why, too? Historically, uh, different groups of people have been, like, captured as science experiments, right? Like, in terms of, um, I know we were talking about the triplets, but I mean, like... Uh, you don't mean, like, Jews in World War Two, do you? Like, that kind of thing? Well, kind of. Kind of, right? That was, they were subject to tests. That's true. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about a lot of different stuff. In my brain, I was kind of thinking of like more of that running in the woods kind of thing. But, but yeah. So I guess I was thinking more of um, I don't know, like in other countries and stuff. But, but there was something about like capturing other humans, literally capturing them, not just like not just like finding them and they were unknowingly a part of an experiment, but like capturing them. You know, it's all weird and, and definitely. But but how Atwood has always said the book. Things in the book really happened. Well, Paulo, let's move over to Canada because we have quite a bit going on over in Canada. You know, I kind of go back and forth on Luke. I know a lot of people just flat out hate him. I have seen moments of promise from from Luke as a human, and and I I. I can kind of understand him on some levels, but this episode, after what Emily went through to get where she is, I understand Moira's explanation and all the other stuff, but still, I gotta, I gotta think Luke's a little bit of a dick, like the way that he goes so quickly to like anger. I want you out of my house. So let's talk about this a little bit. So Emily has decided to stay with Moira and Luke and with the baby. And we always call the other character Erin because that's her actress name in real life. So we're just going to keep calling her Erin. She's from Colony. <laughs> we just, we just, I don't know. I've never really absorbed her character name. Weird, but true. So they're all living in one house now. I really do subscribe to what the baby and Emily represent and why Luke is having such a hard time. So for me, the baby and why Luke is not caring for the baby or bonding with the baby is like so layered, but also very obvious. I mean, the baby is a physical manifestation of his wife being raped in another, you know, place right across the border here. It's not his baby. He knows it's not his baby. Isn't it weird that Luke, from Luke's point of view, 
in a twisted way. Okay. A rape baby is best case scenario compared to your wife having consensual sex and you're taking care of that baby. It's sort of like a different mental thing. It's like, well, she was forced. Oh, well, she. <laughs> this was from for, for pleasure, you know, and I'm still taking care of this baby. It's like a mental thing that's like, mm. I'm not as thrilled about but he doesn't know. choice B. I know. That's why I say in a weird, twisted way, rape is like the better mental choice for him to make. I guess so. Isn't that, uh, so isn't that for, crazy? For you guys that aren't, aren't exactly following what we're saying, you, you know, or maybe you skipped seasons one and two. I don't know what you're up to, but but say you did. So Nick was was a choice for her to be having sex with and a choice for her to proceed with in theory, though. Like, let's just say in theory, because Serena forced them to have sex, if you remember. Like, she oh, yeah. introduced June to Nick as like the source of the semen here, right? But they had a few optional sessions. They, they totally they totally did. That's true. And I so that so this is a very gray area in terms of what Nick really was. You know, I mean, he was a source of comfort during, you know, her most vulnerable and horrific time, right? So uh -huh. so I don't know that that's like a chosen, you know, haven exactly. It, it's just a port in the storm, you know? But but then I agree with you that like no matter how you look at this baby, there's nothing about this baby that you really want to love on, you know? Yeah. And and additionally, like they try to make it out like Luke's got important stuff to do. Like he's got to go get to the lawyer at the embassy. We're not sure why or what that's about. It's important lawyer business. He says basically acts like. Right. Right. But at the same time, you have this baby now crying night and day at the house. Like this, this apartment is getting very cramped, you know? Yeah. So I'm not, I, 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 I get it why bonding with this baby would be hard. Now, what do you think about Emily? What, what did you think about what Moira said and what Emily is supposed to represent? Well, in this episode, especially, she's filling in the parts that he's not thinking about. She's explaining to him things that he can't even really know about, even though now he's got three handmaids to live with him. He's still pretty locked out of of the way that they think and the things that they that they that they go through. But Moira is trying to help him along so that he can at least make peace with certain concepts and get along in his life and and accept where he is and what he's doing. So it made sense to me that Moira was explaining to you know Luke like she's not ready, she's not ready to go back to her other life, like she doesn't know what she's going to find. But then on the flip, I really appreciated what she expressed to Emily, where she was like, "Hey, listen." You not being interested in calling your family that is on this side, you are representative of a potential that June is going to get out. And instead of calling Luke, she's just going to go and like blend into the population. And that is basically Luke's like greatest fear is that she's going to get out and she's not going to come find him for whatever reason. And so I understood like where Luke's apprehension of his like having this manifestation of this woman, right? Like sitting here of all of his fears, all of his fears are sitting there. Like maybe she's alive and she's well and she's in Canada and she's just not calling you exactly how Emily's doing with her wife. I think she really was grading on him for that. He probably didn't take the time to even approach that as like a concept until Moira pointed it out. He just knew there was someone extra in his house and he wasn't sure what was bothering him about did it. He point, did she point that out to Luke? I think she just explained that to Emily. 
like Emily's like, why the fuck do you have such a problem with me? And she's like, let me explain. Like you representative of like, what if June doesn't call? I don't know that she they had a it meal, to right? Did they? Yeah. Because he kept saying shitty things. I thought he left. And then that's when she, that's when Moira explained it to Emily. Is that what I'm I thought, what I'm I thought so. Here? No, I mean, definitely there could have been additional conversations. So don't like get me wrong here. But I feel like that that was a really fair and a good reminder to all of us i guess as we're watching that all these different survivors of different things may respond in a very different way you know you have emily and you know she has been physically tortured and mentally tortured in ways that the other girls weren't necessarily like yes moira was in jezebel's and aaron i don't wasn't in there for very long really but you bad things happened to her that aaron was just mentally not yeah, it all yeah, it broke her faster, right? Yeah. So so the but the idea of like the fact that Emily is like physically deformed now with everything that has happened to her with the punishment and everything. So there's parts to that that are like she has to face that with her spouse, you know? Mm-hmm. And so let's get into some of this medical stuff that is going on with Emily because they hit that real hard in this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they mentioned right away that it's possible to have some reconstructive surgery after female genital mutilation. This is something I didn't know. So, um, but that's something they, they, they approach right away. I'm immediately thinking, well, what about the radiation and all that shit from the colonies? She was, she was at the point where she was losing teeth. How did she just magically recover? I know that she spent some time in Gilead proper, but there's no linger. I don't imagine that she was getting like top flight care. I don't think she was getting any care. It is, it is a little boggling that part because yeah, they, they do. They like touch on her cholesterol. Um, I do want to say that I really appreciated how much that the doctor talked about the, the clit reconstruction and how important that was. And like, definitely the idea of not um, making that seem like a small thing, like that was a really big deal. You know, and that they acknowledged that, that that was a really big deal. I think that that was amazing. And I'm glad they talked about it. Um, It probably, again, the same way that it brought up the concept of, you know, female uh, mutilation. I hope that it like gave some hope to people who are out there who maybe had endured that maybe didn't know that there was reconstructive surgery, you know? Yeah. Like maybe that actually like gave somebody some information that was like, wow, I I hope that that's really an option for people. Additionally, though, I absolutely wholly agree with you. That doesn't jive. That time, that radiation time. Now, she was a little bit better, a little bit better about, remember, washing her, not not using the water. Remember that? Yeah. But still, how did they not come back and say you're like stage two or something? You know, like that. Uh, right. I mean, she only had high cholesterol after all of that. I don't know. I mean, and maybe that's why she was like in such a daze. Like, how did I get? out of here and cholesterol is what they're talking you know like i don't even know maybe that was the point of that but i i agree I, I, that didn't follow at all till that time in the colonies i believe we're supposed to overlook some of that i do too okay talk to me about your awesome analysis about the eye doctor appointment this was the most dramatic part of the episode's usage of fancy editing and camera angles you know, she's at the eye doctor and a lot of that is out of focus. Her demeanor through the whole scene is also pretty out of focus. 
wouldn't you say, Caroline? And the and the and the optometrist is is doing the typical one or two, and they've got the camera completely out of focus, right? So, from our point of view, none of it's better because right. she's because she's distracted by everything. Why wouldn't she be? She comes out with new glasses, and uh. it seems like she has like again this like fresh set of eyes literally and figuratively and she walks over to the window and it seems like she takes sort of like a second to absorb it all there's a little kid who's running down the hall i think it finally reminds her she's got a little boy you know she's got a little boy at home what is she doing she's finally out and again she's gone through that experiment of of choice one choice two choice one choice two and it's like she sat there weighing the choices you know stay sort of in hiding now or go find my family and just assume and hope that they are going to accept me for who I am and what I've been through, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it was so, I mean, it was artful. It was the most creative usage of both the, the storytelling plus the camera work, plus the editing. The rest of the episode is pretty by the numbers, right? I really, I really agree with you. I really think that there was something really, you know, beautiful about that little part. I mean, you could almost make like a short film about that, really, where you just took like a woman who didn't feel worthy of calling her family anymore. She goes to the eye doctor. She has this like whole thing. Like, I mean, really, it could have been like a five minute film, you know, it was Mm -hmm. really good. So I also thought that the, the, the reaction of her wife of just like, you know, just freezing in time and just stopping in the middle of the road with the car, that was so leftovers for me. I loved that. I loved the idea that like the whole world could just stop, you know, when you would find somebody like that, come back into your life. Amazing. This episode of the two first episodes was by far my favorite. I agree. I mean, the first one had like about, I mean, it had a lot of events, but it had, seems like it had about an inch worth of story. You know what I mean? Well, this one (laughs) just was like so much more of like where we're going. It seemed like episode one had to like finish off where we've been. It laid a little bit of groundwork. Like I said, like like this, I think with the episode, with the season's shift, to the new players and kind of the the new focus on women being where the story is really at as opposed to part you know just some some part of the story that's being trampled by by the men i think we don't need to pay attention to the men so much except for maybe lawrence just because we're just not sure yeah, he's what he's just, up to. He's just such an interesting character. So overall, this was definitely a great episode. I love the dialogue. I really enjoyed like the small moments of the artful work, like with the eye doctor and just everything. Just this like small moments, even the Lydia moments, the the aces moment. Like I, there was just so many yays in this episode. I was all in. So I'm hoping that people who may have been, you know, suffering from a little handmade fatigue get through that that first episode and sort of feel like, okay, we put it to bed. We put all that stuff aside now, I hope. You know, we can move forward and see what's going to happen. Do you believe or predict that we will continue to follow Emily's progress in, in reintegrating? And or do you think Emily will somehow try to take down Gilead from outside? I believe... Alexis Bledel is a full cast member now, so I think she's going to be in, you know, some new, some more episodes. Her role in in trying to take down Gilead, I would like to see that because Moira has focused on the incoming refugees, right? That's how she's helping. 
I don't know what Luke's doing, but whatever. But he's meeting he, with lawyers at the embassy, and he's like picketing whenever Commander shows up. But that's about it, right? I'm not sure. <laughs> so now they're taking care of a baby. I would like to see some of our, you know, expats um, doing doing something more invasive in in trying to get America back. It will certainly be more exciting to have some of our girls on the outside, you know, be able to kind of give that hope and give that, um, that strength and that, that's that part, like a a storyline of like working from the outside back in. She's not a soldier, but she's, she's a warrior though. She's, (laughs) she's got soul, but she's not a soldier. It's a song. I've got soul, but I'm not a soldier. Oh my goodness! Getting late, folks. <laughs> she's the she's the one with the fighting spirit. I mean, Moira's tough, but she ain't never run over some guy's head. Moira, yeah, agreed with that. Moira's a little bit of a surprise, to be honest with you. Like, I honestly thought that there'd be she was she's feisty. You know, she she was the chick scratching into the you know bathroom wall in the red center. Like I kind of thought she actually would be doing something more not within the system like she is, you know, not just working on processing people or whatever, but like actually a little bit more subversive, I guess, you know, a little bit more interesting. June had to re-enter her life for her to get out of her rut at Jezebel's. True. So maybe she's got a little like, once she gets into like her kind of routine, she just kind of stays put. I don't know. Maybe that's an interesting point. Emily pushed Lydia over the stairs. I mean, she's... You're right. She's got got the the chutzpah, right? I believe so. To get this done. Yeah. Well, and that would be a very exciting season to see. So I am looking forward to it. People have asked me if this is the last season of Handmaids. Now, I've seen nothing at all about that. But when I think about the longevity of the story, I really wonder how long can we keep like June in Gilead, you know, the resistance is starting now. How long can that really go on? How many episodes can you really do that without showing some pretty serious gains? How long can you keep Hannah apart? What do you really think about the longevity of the, of the series? I think that they have teased this before as being like seven or something like something huge, which, you know, is, is a bold prediction. Certainly is. When shows are getting, Shows that people like, shows that put up numbers are are getting canceled kind of regularly. To answer your question, seven seems too long. Five seems seems uh, to closer me, to right plenty. where where you wouldn't be introducing kind of treadmill type seasons. You know where it's like you didn't. You yeah, didn't. where you look back and you're like, Cousin Oliver had no place in this. Right, right, right. I, You know what? If if they could make some serious headway in this season, I would be okay with maybe one more season of sort of the 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 reintegration and or like dismantling of, of Gilead, you know? And, and, and I don't know that, can you go back to like a happy ending? If the entire world isn't having babies, does the series have to end with us making healthy babies? everywhere all the time like is that is that is that end game for the series to end or is it for all these women to go back to their worlds and be whole again that's a good question i mean if you're just watching this show depending on your perspective you may think well winning is getting america back Mm, but that would be i think wildly wrong i think (laughs) i think they've turned this show into a story about the oppression of women. And so if 
we can get back to a stage where even if it's not called America anymore, but it's someplace where our, our stars and all the other women that we ever want to meet are not crushed by by the government around them and are free to make their own choices. That's the winning I, That's finale. probably the win. I mean, I wouldn't doubt that that, that finale also features babies being born like healthy or births again. something to that effect. I think that'd be the cherry on top. I guess so. I mean, it, it is it is a question mark of like, you guys, I'm, we're asking you guys as, as listeners and we'll put out a little poll after this comes out. Like, what what is, what is the end game for Handmaid's Tale? Is it a healthy world where babies are being born again and, and people are back to quote unquote normal, like Serena and Fred would say? No more Gilead, but but still the the day to day oppression that any woman or or individual might feel for their own reasons. Or do we have to get the world to a point of, again, equal rights for everybody, freedom for everyone, everything? Is is that where Handmaids needs to get to? You could, you could and maybe, healthy babies. You could maybe backdoor into all of it. Yeah. If you start having the healthy babies kind of early on then you don't need Gilead anymore. Right. Right. So, okay. Hmm. And then what if... See, I was going to go the other way. Our expat women come back down and, and they restart the government. You get America, you get the women in in charge of their own destinies and you get babies. Boom. Solved it. <laughs> intrigue. Intrigue. Well, I look forward to where they're going to try to get to. It's always interesting when you don't even know what the show's Endgame is. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there are certain shows like Breaking Bad where you're like, well, Walter White's either going to die, die with a lot, a lot of money for the family, or he's going to get cured. Like, you know, there's kind of only like two choices of how a show's going to end, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, huh, this in particular one, I, I don't know really what Endgame is for Handmaid's Tale. I don't know what we need to get to, just the fall of Gilead. The one thing or that the more than that, that the book exposes is that Gilead does end. It doesn't say, how long it takes to end. It just does. Okay. Okay. So that intrigue, yeah. very intriguing. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Catch us on iTunes or your preferred podcast software. Our website, dailyreview.com. That's D-A-L-E-Y review.com. Facebook or Twitter or wherever you find us, please leave us a comment and a rating to let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for listening, pot people. Thanks for listening to my mom and dad. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Just go home, folks.